0: Hey, this is Camille, and you're listening to Marketing My Way Through It. So I'm Camille, uh, the guy who tweeted about the podcast. Apparently, you all follow him on Twitter. That's how we met. Saul and I know each other because he's in Toronto. I'm in Toronto. We worked on a project together. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to be, I used to do demand gen for a couple of startups in Toronto, and then. Actually, it's been one year now that I've been doing my own consulting slash, like, I call it mom and pop shop. Uh, so it's all uh, demand gen, HubSpot, Marketo, Salesforce, Facebook ads, like that whole package. And yeah, that's me.
1: All right. Uh, I'll go. So, um, so I'm Sal so cold I run a, a non-traditional marketing agency. We do... Um, kind of whatever anybody needs but our specialty is like marketing stunts, creating you know content that gets people to talk about stuff we do a lot of risky sort of things just today um, uh, today I closed two projects where one we're building a like a well i'm not doing it personally i have someone to do it but we're building like a crazy rube goldberg machine for someone to use in a uh, in a uh, trade show booth environment and uh and i'm trying to close a deal where i'm build like gonna do like a crazy stunt where everyone gets arrested at the end um <laughs> but like a lot of stuff we do is just create video content and and like lead gen for for like startups and stuff like that so there's there's the stuff that's fun and then there's the stuff that pays the bills.
2: Does everyone get out after they get arrested or <laughs> does
1: um, go through the legal process? So it, it it everyone will get out, but like we we legit have a line item for like a lawyer. So it's oh, okay.
3: yeah. good, I'm glad that's budgeted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can go now. Uh, so yeah. I'm Corey, in um, here in San Diego, California. Uh, I've worked for um, SaaS startups for about two years now, previously at a startup called Cordial here in San Diego, and most recently the head of growth for um, which is like your analytics for SaaS and subscription companies, um, like the business and financial side of I've things.
0: I've used them before. Awesome, yeah. Josh.
2: Yeah, I'm Josh. Um, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I come from more of like a writing background. I've I've studied English and journalism and was like at a more traditional marketing roles for like enterprise type companies. Um, About two years ago, I moved into more SEO content marketing stuff uh, for a project, two project management software now. The first one was called WorkZone. And now I'm with something called ClickUp. Um, which is about a year and a half old. And so I'm in charge of all our content marketing. I mostly do blogging and and writing and and keyword optimization, that sort of thing with some paid ads and paid marketing opportunities where it makes sense. Very much startup. So all all hands on deck for the marketing aspect.
0: Cool. Do you guys wanna kick it off with the Jeff Bezos news or something else?
3: To be honest, I'm not like I just started reading about it on. It's the pretty Hustle. amazing.
0: It's it's um, pretty amazing. Yeah,
3: yeah on the on the newsletter, so I don't know a ton about it. I read the Medium <laughs> article for like the first like two minutes, and then I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> um, yeah. But still, kind of blurry to me.
1: I kind of love it. It's like it's so fascinating because, the my favorite line in the whole bit was where he just said if I can't stand up for like myself you know someone of such means and prominence and financial abilities who can and and also like it kind of showed a little bit about bezos you know like if you if you paid attention to bezos the man over sort of the last like decade he went from like nerd to kind of like fitness guru yeah, guy yeah, yeah i just i kind of love the fact he's like <laughs> you want to see my you want to see my dick here's my dick kind of thing it's like you can't you can't you know it's like if there's anyone above the law it's me and he, he sort of proved it too and and how great is it that the national inquirer put a blackmail thing in writing like you know it's like like I don't know. It just seemed like nobody should do that.
0: I I have one of the interesting that stood stood out for me is how we owned the story on this. Like if it was somebody else and they're like, oh, his dick pics are on the internet or whatever, or he was you know being unfaith whatever that situation was.
1: It's
2: mm-hmm.
0: just like this is not even about that. This is about like more, taking a moral stand and like he, you know, you guys are being douches, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hire unlimited budget, the best person I know, he can spend as much money as he can. And I I think like, and the article that he wrote from what I read and like what people tweeted about is obviously not like a PR company, it's him writing it himself. Mm-hmm. And he just like owned the story on that thing. And now everything's about like how National Enquirer is like blackmailing him and that's wrong. And it's not even about like the fact that he has his dick pics on the internet.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he, uh, He's an interesting dude. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't give the
2: Washington Post like an exclusive or something because he... You
0: know, That's true, yeah. yeah.
2: It would help helped their traffic, apparently, because everyone's like... But I think he's
0: very traffic. hands-off with it. Like Washington Post from what I... So I was listening to... I listened to this podcast on uh, called Record Media. It's on the oh, media yeah, yeah. By with Peter Kafka. And from what I understand, like Washington Post is like very independent and he doesn't even like get involved with in any, any of the stuff. But the good thing is like, I was talking to Corey before this is like medium has been sort of forgotten about almost like nobody really talks about medium anymore. And like what Williams has been trying to do with medium, but like just Jeff Bezos publishing that one article probably got them like a billion visitors in like 24 hours.
1: Even if you go one level down on this, like you talk about the Washington Post, um, how much are these guys going to respect him now that he's like, he's, he's literally stood up for like real true free media and freedom of speech because like realistically he probably could have, you know, forced them to re- remove an article if he wanted to. Yeah. And he's he's like, no, like the reason I bought this newspaper, which I personally think the reason he bought the newspaper was to actually, you know, have a media place that you know could block stories about him being <laughs> monopolies and stuff like that but but uh you know if you want to pretend that everyone in the world is good he he really stood up for all the the reasons that you own a newspaper, you know yep. freedom of speech and and you know not not creating fake news and all that stuff, so like these guys should be pretty proud to be working for this guy
0: for sure, and I also think that. Like with the with Washington Post, with timing being bought, bought by Benioff, I just think these guys have like a ton of money and now they want to do something good in the world. Mm-hmm. And what better than to stand up for journalism because it's the most like with the layoffs happening at BuzzFeed and Vice and all that stuff. But also, I, I feel like I forgot my train of thought. If anybody wants to jump out, I forgot what I was going to say.
2: Well, it could help, like, you know, detract or deflect attention from Amazon's, like, warehouses. That's
0: other, true.
2: That's like, true. Yeah. Practices. And I guess also, like, the headquarters may not be going to, like, New York or something like that. I didn't read that. I just saw that headline somewhere. So.
0: And there's also a political undertone to it because, like, Donald Trump's been, I don't want to get into politics on this conversation, but Donald Trump's been, like, a vocal critic of The Post and Jeff Bezos. And the guy who owns the National Enquirer is like okay. close friends with them. So I feel like there might be more to the story and like, you know, how did his phone get hacked and how did these private pictures get leaked? Like nobody knows what's how that actually came about. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. It's all for secret conversations at Davos or that, where does that Idaho like retreat they all go to? <laughs> um, you guys know what I'm talking about? It's like the millionaire or billionaires retreat. I
0: I, I haven't read about that.
2: Yeah,
3: sounds like, cool. Where do I sign up?
2: Yeah, I know, right? It's like Sun something. I will have to look that up.
1: What else do we got besides uh, Bezos?
0: I mean we can't go to the category software stuff. We have some talking points in the Google Docs, so we can all just like dig into it, pick that off one by one.
3: I'm down. I love the category category creation stuff. Do you
0: wanna do you wanna kick it off?
3: Um sure. Well I mean I guess to give some context. So this is based off of um sort of like a little mini tweet storm from April Dunford, who I think is also there in Toronto, right? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe next time we'll put her in. <laughs> Yeah, maybe we can pull her in, um, but she basically has this tweet talking about how um, most quote unquote category creation uh, isn't really category creation. It's mostly just like niching down or like your messaging, positioning, but like to really be a category creator is one, probably really rare, but also two, really hard to pull off. And it's not as like, it's not like the, the growth hack that everyone says that it is.
0: Yeah. And I think the second part of it is like this: it's so rare that there's actually a new category of software that's invented. Like it's all, for me, it's all based on, I can't find the link to the L. Williams article, but like, I think it was in the Atlantic or something. He said like all software is based on, uh, built on human behavior. So like there's something somebody's already doing and then software comes in to help either automate or save time or make it better. So to me, it's like when you say, when people say, oh, we created a new category, I kind of roll my eyes and I'm like, well, you really didn't because it was already like either people might have called it something different or it might have been you some, like it was already an existing process or, you know, something there that you sort of laid on top of. And also I think it's a bad marketing play because it takes a lot of money to actually hammer that message somebody's, like hammer that message down somebody's throat, like I look at, uh, I mean, I have Gainsight here and Gainsight spends a ton of money on like conferences and advertising and th- like whatever to actually associate Gainsight with customer success. And then if you talk about customer success, I don't think customer success is anything new. It's basically customer support that's been modified for more SaaS businesses. I don't know what you guys take as on that.
1: Well, so customer success is nothing more than tracking customer service. It's you just <laughs> <a whole> <laughs> own metrics over it, but all, all the, the category creation stuff, it's all just branding and PR. So you look yeah. at, you look at FreshBooks, they used to be online in, they used to be online, uh, online invoicing instead of accounting. Well, there isn't really an online invoicing category. It was just a different way of, of saying like, we're just a little bit different. It's all, it's all just like, creating a category is nothing more than communications because That's like, a good point. Yeah. yeah, like nobody really cares about what category you're in. It's all about what do you do for me? What solution yeah. do you provide and all that stuff? So it's like category creation is really like it, it we're basically just the fact that we're talking about it we're, we're doing what you know most people hope to accomplish through category creation it's really just changing the conversation and assuming it's a it's a quick and easy way to assume leadership in something because you might be the only person in your category everyone yeah. else is doing the exact same thing as you you're just doing it with yeah. like your you're blue and they're red um so it's a quick way to assume leadership and it's a quick way to highlight a differentiator but you know like you know looking at these notes like drift drift is olark you know it is wechat it's all these things like you know you know slack slack is yeah yeah, like all, all these companies they just they they create you know if anything you know you're you're you can call yourself a different category if you've created some some coolness around it but other than that like nobody's really doing anything that's like brand brand new like gmail you know people thought was so different and unusual it was still just email with a better ui and easier functionality um but i think you know Even like everything we do in the SaaS world, you know, it's all about patting ourselves on the back a little too much where we get into these traps because like nobody's nobody's changing the world, nobody's creating categories. We're we're just, you know, we're not we're not saving lives, we're saving lifestyles. And I think people (laughs) people get caught up in that a little too much sometimes.
0: That could be our podcast names, saving lives, saving lifestyles.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
3: I think it's interesting, like, even as I look at it now and just thinking through it more, like, you know, one of the kind of points we have here is talking about Drift and Intercom. Drift is coining conversational marketing right now. Right. They're doing a very good job of it, frankly.
0: I just roll um, my eyes at it, though. I don't think that's a thing. There are, I admire them for what I've done and what they've right. doing, but I'm just like, stop making it a thing <laughs> because... Yeah, you're your lagging
3: your eyes on the, on the bell curve. Um, but Intercom as well, like, Drift and Intercom are very similar. Again, Olark, very similar but like you don't see intercom like trying to not more successful. Um, and so I, don't, I feel like it's, it's one of those things where like marketers get really excited about it and like, Oh, let's create a category, but it's all kind of like in our heads. Like it's too, like it doesn't matter to the customer at the end of the day. Like the real, the real value is if someone is trying to bucket you in some way, like, are you a CRM? Are you marketing automation? And then to help facilitate the conversation, you come up with something that, you know, kind of clicks with them, but you can't just like, let's call it this thing. And like, now it's X and Y marketing, wherever it is, like, it has to be from the customer's mouth. And it actually yeah. has to actually like, continue help the conversation continue instead of like, we're now are the market leader in X market. It's like, cool. No one else is in that market. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. You played yourself.
0: And Did I was thinking that, just one last, one small point. I was thinking that the, because a lot of these category creation things happen inside the tech world. So like we all live in a bubble, like normal people don't talk like, that. like normal, like it's when you go outside that early adopter and go into the main, mainstream market, like it just, maybe it falls apart. Maybe they, they don't really like, you know, category creation and whatever you want to call it. Conversational marketing, whatever, they're like, oh, this is just like live chat. So it kind of might just fall apart.
2: I think Drift has created a category that they're not even like a part of because conversational marketing to me is like Facebook Messenger marketing or even oh, that's text, interesting. text message marketing. Um, you know, as we're able to share more and like maybe even broadcast more on like Facebook Messenger or, or WhatsApp or something like that. Yeah, and I don't really consider Drift a player in any of those fields. I mean, I guess it could be like B2B conversational marketing, but they're
0: not. That's a
2: good point. Facebook Messenger or something. That's
1: a good point. Here's the other thing people like lose out in these, these category creations, you know, it's like conversational marketing or whatever they're calling it. Has any, has anyone ever Googled that, that topic looking for a solution? You know, sometimes they get too cute with this stuff and you can get, completely lost by no one will ever find you like you know what what's wrong with just saying we're a better blank instead of saying we're we're way over here on the in on the other side but no one's searching for that thing that you think is so unique
0: yeah and that that leads me to like a very tactical thing where when you're trying to invent a category how do you want like market to people like how do you build associate how do you explain to people what you do because you have to create this whole new mental model around oh we're actually this and then like there's no there's no search volume. There's how do you how do you find that market? How do you market it to them? How do you find the channels to actually resource people because you're in theory you're creating something totally new?
2: Well, they didn't do it out of the gate. So they built on top of familiarity that people already had with other brands and other services. Are you talking about drift? Yeah. Yeah, before they called themselves conversational marketing.
0: Yeah, and like what I when I look at intercom at drift, I see like Drift has a lot of the HubSpot DNA in them. So like a lot of the Drift guys and girls used to work at HubSpot before. So like they're following that same inbound marketing playbook that HubSpot invented in one marketing. Drift is sort of following the same playbook. And then I look at Intercom and Intercom's like very product-focused company. Like they just focus on like building the best product and like they have like amazing integrations and this and that, but they don't really like trumpet themselves as like, we've invited a new category. They're just like, we're building a solid product. And that's like, that's what we're doing right now. But what's interesting is like for me, when I look at it, I see Intercom becoming like the next Salesforce almost, which not quite really, but like it's almost positioned to be that um, new CRM where Salesforce has become so clunky, Intercom can become that place where people like use it as a CRM versus, you know, Drift might just be restricted to plugging into like other systems to actually provide value in a way.
2: I mean, from a content perspective, Intercom has a lot more resources than Drift does. I mean, for you know, from the HubSpot playbook, uh, they put out tons of amazing resources mm-hmm. I mean, from that perspective. Uh, I'm not as familiar with like their product development side of things, but I see what you're saying.
3: Yeah, and I don't know if you guys um, have read uh, Behind the Cloud by, you know, Mark Benioff about kind of the story of Salesforce. Uh Go back to Salesforce and go back to kind of um, like all Benioff's tactics, and he was known for like kind of all these wild ideas and gimmicks and kind of plays that he would pull. Um, but it's really interesting because I had heard the story from other people, but then when I read it, it gave me a lot more clarity. But he basically like there were already tons of CRM solutions or what they mm-hmm. what was functionally CRM, um, but they were all like these downloadable clunky enterprise software licenses. And so, like a lot of people attribute Salesforce to creating SaaS and to creating CRM, mm-hmm. but all that he did was take what was already existing and then he put it into, you know, quote unquote, the cloud and made it a, a web application and then made it self-serve, you know, and now all of a sudden you have, but then they have the leverage and they have the the power and, and the marketing kind of power to um, to coin CRM and to coin SaaS and to really own it into I think in that way, like they did create those categories, but they didn't create the um, the product for the category. Like, I mean, they, they really just took what was already existing and they gave it a new yeah. model.
0: That's interesting. It's almost like a new business model on an existing product. So like instead of yeah. being the on-premise thing, they're just like, and essentially what they did was make it easier for people to buy and use it. So yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's actually, I haven't read behind the, cl- behind the Cloud. It's on my uh, reading list.
3: Yeah, I would recommend it. And like he talks about how basically it was it was built on this idea that um, instead of having to pay like thousands of dollars, different like companies were spending like fifty, sixty grand a year for this downloadable software, and then they would end up next year. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, "Why? Why would we do this? Why don't we just bring everything into a subscription model?" And then we'll host it on the cloud, so that's easy to swap licenses out, or you know what they call licenses, and um, and then you have a brand new opportunity for your business.
0: That's true, and it's funny that Salesforce hasn't done anything new in like Salesforce is still the old sales. Like I use right. it every day, and I'm just like, oh my god.
3: Yep, it's still the same.
2: Do <laughs> so like, so you consider it? them a category? What do we say? A category creator? A category leader? Sorry, say again. So you would uh, consider Salesforce a category creator then?
3: I think I would um, because, well, I mean, again, it's like, what what is a category creator? I think what, what I was trying to get at was like, yes, they may have coined the category in, in the same way that like Drift was successful in getting Forrester or Gartner, whichever yeah. one it was to add, yeah, to add conversational marketing as a category. So like technically, um, yes. But like the point is that like, their product and like really what they did wasn't anything so innovative that they completely created a new category. Everything is still sort of a remix or like another take on something that's already existing. Mm
2: -hmm. What's surprising to me is I read somewhere recently that Salesforce only has 16% of the CRM market, which may be a made up statistic, but seems very low uh, that they're not like 75% of the market.
0: I think because there's a lot of smaller CRMs that like, depending on, uh, like, Salesforce is the leading CRM in terms of market share compared to Oracle, SAP, and all those other guys. But I think if you look at the whole, like, market in itself and people who can't possibly, like, I'm a one-man shop or a two-person shop. I use a CRM, I just don't use Salesforce. Like, my CRM is, like, a Google Sheet or something. So I think because of that, the market is, like, so big that, there's a lot of people who likely never and there's a, like a lot of small like copper or prosper works so, or you know zoho crm so i think that's part of the reason why uh it's only 17% which but the way they position it is like they're the leading crm by like by market share which is true but if you look at the market in general there there's like a lot of small players that just like scattered around
2: yeah right. i guess considering how huge they are i just thought they had more of the market yeah
0: yeah
3: Yeah, I mean that could be like there's thousands of other businesses. That so like in in relation, sixteen percent could be like a if that's if that number is true, it could be like a you know vast majority or like a you know yeah. huge comparison to other other companies.
1: Sol um,
0: anything to add on Salesforce.
1: No, I don't. I don't. Uh, I got nothing. Okay. <laughs> I, don't pay, I don't pay that much attention to Salesforce.
0: Come to my words, all so, <laughs> <laughs> no. so do you want to talk out, touch on marketing automation or we sort of covered that with HubSpot, or, but I'm happy to like if you guys have any. I think Josh, you might have added this bullet point here, but I'm not sure.
2: About marketing automation? Uh, yeah. I didn't, but I'm happy to talk about it if we want.
0: No, yes, no. I'm not seeing any. Well, let's move on to it. the I mean, I don't have anything to add. It's the same. I think we're going to go back to the same where uh, HubSpot is like inventing invented uh, inbound marketing, but Marketo is like the more enterprise robust solution. And then PodOd is just like sitting there. So I don't really have anything to add. It's just like I, I see a lot of parallels between what HubSpot did and what MailChimp is now trying to do and then like how... Drift is trying to position itself and like a lot of other people are trying to like create new categories for themselves.
1: You know, I do think is interesting about marketing automation. They don't hear too many people talking about it. And, you know, I'm creating my own category here by taking this in a different direction. But (laughs) um, we all agree marketing automation is the way to go. We all agree that it works. We all agree that everyone should be doing it. But man, has every company not just adopted the exact same best practices? Oh, yeah. I got four emails today from like, I'm just in people's funnels four completely different brands, four different industries and the emails, the emails, two of them had the same subject line. The, the emails all sound exactly the same. Um, like someone needs to shake up like the actual content that goes in these machines because like, man, it's like, it's like there's six people that are writing emails for a million brands. Like I get best practices, people get caught yeah. up in them, yeah. but you know, it's like, I got two emails today. The subject line was, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was basically like, are we breaking up? I was on the fifth email. So they you wanted know, to, I,
0: know. I blame LinkedIn for this. I, if you, mm. I don't know if you guys use LinkedIn a lot, but for some reason, my LinkedIn feeds a lot of like salespeople in there mm. and they all like share best practices for like, what's a good subject line? What's a good email yeah. body? And then everybody just co- copies that same thing over. Like it's a thing where mm. somebody once said, oh, put your comment, put your link in the comment of a LinkedIn post and it'll get more mm. shares. And then everybody starts doing it. I'm like, what the f- Deep, like for me mm. to dig through like a hundred comments to find that damn link. I want to read it. So painful. Like
1: stop mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I I feel like a, go ahead. So, no, no,
3: go. I was going to say, I, I feel like a, a best practice isn't like applicable to marketing. It's almost like an oxymoron because the whole, <laughs> whole thing different. And then you apply a best practice and all of a sudden you're doing the same thing as everyone else. You know, I understand like the principle of a best practice in other industries of like, here's how we do things. Here's how people want to be treated. Here's how people want to be, you know, talked to, or here's how we just do this thing. But in marketing, it's all about gaining an advantage in some way, standing out, you know, converting higher, getting someone's attention. And so best practice is like, maybe like the last thing that you should do. You know what I mean? It's like, here's like your list of things not to do. Let me just avoid all the best practices and like come up with my own versions of these or something different altogether.
2: Yeah, but do you think we're hyper aware of it? Like if you're just like an administrator at an insurance agency and you get the, are we breaking up out of the one funnel that really? we're in for your CRM or something like that, or your uh, invoicing tool, or your accounting software, like that may still have resonance. And so- That's a good point. Yeah, I just find like there is a curve to it. We're probably all a little bit on like the early adopter side of things. Yeah. And yeah. so at some point it will become tired. And, and that subject line may already be there um, as far as... I hope as so. I just,
3: yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, was, I mean, that's a good point. Like, I am a marketer. I mean, I, so at my last job at Cordial, I was a marketer marketing marketing software for other marketers. <laughs> yeah. Like, talk about, you know, marketing inception. Like, it, it does become hard. And I think, you know, we can become jaded at, to some degree of, like, uh, you know maybe things are still working, but we just don't like, like it. Or cause we see it too often or yeah. like, it's hyper, um, what was the word you use? Hyper,
0: uh, hyper aware,
3: hyper aware. Yeah. Hyper aware of it. Um, but maybe, so yeah, maybe in other industries, best practices do work, but maybe not in like the marketing, so, like marketing. Yeah. Their marketers becomes problematic.
1: I, I mean- think, I think there are there is value to some best practices like but best, best practices I don't think should be copying content you know it's like if best practices are send 5 emails then do a phone call like that stuff I can and anyone can adopt but if like those 5 emails are the exact same you know structure and almost same message as your competitor and all those things. Like it's just it's silly. Like I'd almost have I, yeah. I'd almost have more respect for a brand who like in their subject line they were just like fuck it. You know? It's like we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> I gotta open that email. Like it's it's called
0: it's called authenticity on T C D being authentic and that's the new marketing best practices to be authentic.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's a great point. Like best practices versus tactics are very tactical application. And so yeah. I think you made a great point about adding some creativity to the best practice and not just copying word for word.
0: And also I feel like, like I've worked with a lot of, well, not like over the past couple of years, I've worked with a lot of B2B SaaS companies and, and the reason I can do consulting is because all of them have the same challenges. All of them have the same, like, I can take what I do and apply it across different companies, not in terms of like copying content, but like, this is how, you know, lead management works. This is how you set up Salesforce. This is, you know, this is how you set up notices or this is what your data model should look like. And like, you know, it should be a picklet, like that kind of stuff. And that can be applied across different companies. And I feel like we're also in that bubble of like marketing people working in tech or related to tech. And then we're signing up for stuff that's, again, for people like us. So like, again, like Corey, you said, being in a marketing company, marketing to marketers, and we're those people that are being marketed to. So like we're hyper aware of that stuff when it happens to us
3: yeah but the, I, that, that's a good point i, w- I would want to rehash what Saul said like there's a definitely a difference between best practice and tactic yeah. that's where a lot of the confusion comes from is when you treat a best practice like a tactic that can just be copy and pasted then you get in trouble but there's definitely always things that like here's how you should do things or here's how you should treat customers or here's how you should talk with respect to someone and like those things you know you can carry on and, and copy yeah, and
0: for sure yeah that's to, a good that's a really good point So uh, Josh, you had something about quality
2: content. Yeah, sure. That was just an idea. I mean, we can talk about that now or a different time, but um, it kind of goes with the tactic thing and, and advice and best practices. Like, I think that's generally a good rule, but I think people are kind of overdoing it sometimes on like the quality content aspect, because if you just hire like a competent writer, a lot of times you probably are creating quality content without really knowing it. And so I just think the bar is set a little too high sometimes, you know, it depends on the keyword and stuff. But
0: yeah, and for me, it goes back to like, how do you measure content? And I'm not a content guy, but like, I've had a lot of those conversations where people are like, you know, we're not getting visits to the site because that means our content marketing isn't working. And I'm like, well, you're like, there's only so much volume or there's only so much search capacity for that thing that you're writing about so there's like you won't it's unlikely you're gonna get like 10 million visitors to your site like that's just not realistic especially when you start out so yeah if anybody has anything else to add
3: i mean i can speak from experience as a previous uh content marketer but i i feel like i understand where you're coming from like that i don't i don't like it when someone's just like create good content you're like, well, like, duh, like, I'm bad <laughs> yeah. content. Um, but at the same time, like there's probably some room for improvement as far as like, what does it mean to have quality content? And like, what does quality mean to you? And like, what are the things, like what are the realist, realistic expectations you should have just because it's great doesn't mean it's going to um, get you hundreds of thousands of, you know, uh, search results or clicks every month. Um, it could be that, that really good thing. Only gets you, uh, you know, ten people onto your website a month, but two of them convert. Yeah, great. You made a great piece of content, but like, don't expect to put your whole business on that one piece of on that one you know blog article, whatever it is.
0: And on the flip side, of, sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point, and and like, I guess my approach is not quite like spray and pray or whatever, but I feel like there is a thing maybe this is more like e-commerce where you can create like five pages, then you have 10,000 visits and you you know sell all this stuff. And like in my experience from B2B, it's not usually the one page that kind of gets the job done that you just optimize like over and over and over again. I mean, that's really cool if that happens for a company, but usually it is more of like a well-rounded yeah. um, foundation of, of content.
0: And like for me, it's also... Like I think about sales enablement as part of content. And if it's like you have opportunity stuck in the pipeline and there's like one product sheet that you create that gets them across the finish line, then like it doesn't get you any visits to the website, but that gets you like, you know, a close customer worth X X amount. And would you define that as quality? I think so. But a lot of people in the traditional sense, a lot of people won't define that as like content marketing, quality content because they're equating content to traffic, which I think is the wrong approach in the first place.
2: Yeah, that's just like explaining your value proposition really well. I mean, and I guess I could, and that doesn't take a whole bunch of research necessarily.
0: Um, Yeah, you just got to be aware of your market and your prospect and your positioning. And then, you know, it's like, it doesn't have to be tied to SEO or traffic in that sense. I guess that was my point.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, but as far as like what makes quality content, there's definitely like, you know, it's, it's going to depend on your business, your business model and your product and sort of your strategy going behind it. But I like how you said, you know, I really think that keyword research is important and like that there could, there's so many different things. It could be keyword research. It could be, um, you know, user intent. It could be uh, like how competitive the keyword is. It could be like the the, num- the number of search results that that thing has or unsearched volume that that thing has. Um, it could also just be like, what's your goal with the content? Is it to... Establish trust is it to capture an email, is that to push someone to a demo, is it to yeah. push someone to a free trial? Like quality content.
0: Cody, you got me. Sorry.
3: Oh, sorry. I looked. I guess I don't know. I'm, I'm some funny business with my AirPods, um, but like quality content should should go through the whole gamut of um, kind of checklists. Is it? Does it meet the kind of keyword research does it fit the user intent does it fit the search volume where we're going after does it fit um the thing we're pushing people to and then you can decide like okay well this thing is a quality piece of content now because it's me it's met the criteria for all the things and not just one like it has a lot of search volume or or yeah, yeah. this is a good keyword for us to go after
0: that's a good point
2: yeah i totally agree with that i guess i I just don't want everyone to think they have to do like a fifty-person roundup on every single like keyword that they're trying to, yeah. <laughs> or do you know so many stats and and like user surveys on every single keyword.
0: What I what I just thought of is uh, infographics. Infographics used to be huge a couple of years ago, and then this all of a sudden died out. Yeah, and they were it like
2: totally did. <laughs>
0: They're like, everybody needs infographics because it's quality content and you can, you know, you could use alt tags and stuff and that. Okay, Corey, I got your message, lost audio, gonna check connection. Okay. If you want to rejoin or something, that's totally cool. And then like, sorry, going back to infographics, like it was like the big thing, and then it sort of died out. And like a lot of people were like, that's quite like if you don't have infographics, you're not doing content marketing, right? Or if you have content marketing, you need to do infographics. Like nobody nobody does it now. So it's interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean I feel like infographics were more from like a sharing perspective, but they yeah. kind of suck from a Google like perspective because, you know, they can't they you know, can't be indexed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then the also like Facebook and all that social sharing kinda of died out as well. So like, you know, you don't Facebook used to give organic posts a lot of reach but then that died out so i think that's part of the cascade effect was people just stop sharing stuff maybe i don't like i'm just i'm just thinking out loud so anything to add or we're going to go to your points about brands
1: let's jump to brands
0: and Corey, are you back on back on okay perfect why are brands afraid of taking risk
1: do you want me to just jump in?
0: <laughs> jump that's that's your talking point. So you, you lay the groundwork and we'll jump in. Hi.
1: Right, so like you know, it's like why are brands uh, afraid of taking risks? Like we're for the most part, marketing right now is probably more boring than it's ever, ever been. And the bar to get people's attention is so low that when companies do anything even remotely edgy, people fall all over themselves. And they're like, wow, that was like such a risk they took when it wasn't a real risk. Like they, they did, you know, something like one degree different than their competition. I don't, I, you know, I'm like, I, I could say that, you know, because of social media, because of access that, that, you know, the the consumer or people who don't even most of the time the people complain aren't even the ones buying the product, but it, you know, there's, there's so much, you know, the, the possibility of so much backlash exists that nobody wants to take any risk, but, but man, are we living in a really boring time right now for content, for marketing, for just about anything. Cause I, I think people just live in fear of like, it's like, you know, one screw up and their career is over. And, and you know, it's kind of a shame because I think like we're all missing out on, on you know, we, we probably have the smartest people at any time working in marketing and creative stuff and no client is giving anybody the leeway or runway to do anything interesting. And even, you know, on the side of agencies, they're... Nobody's pitching anything really interesting because they've all just sort of resigned to the fact that, you know, the only time anyone takes any risk is like Super Bowl commercial, and you know, there's only seven brands in the world that buy Super Bowl ads. So it's just a, uh, it's it's such an interesting weird time. Yeah. Nobody's doing anything interesting right now.
2: I, I feel like a lot of the interesting stuff has been given over to like social media stars and influencers on you know YouTube or Instagram, and they would rather you know, Logan Paul or whoever do something really stupid and crazy and have him do, you know, wear their t-shirt while doing it, um, mm. rather than creating uh, something interesting and creative on their own.
1: But if so, you know, like, and, and I don't disagree with that, but does a brand really get any affinity from that? It's going to be, oh, Logan Paul, you know, walked through a suicide forest <laughs> or, or whatever <laughs> that thing he did. And like, I knew we are going to go there. Yeah, so but it's like, you know, if he's he's wearing a Coca-Cola T-shirt, I don't think anybody remembers Coca-Cola like a week later. They remember like he did the crazy thing. Whereas if like the brands did, you know, something really interesting or different, people will remember that. And And like I'm also a big fan of like things blowing up in people's faces because at least they're talking about you. And really like I think we've learned over and over and over like if a brand really screws up, it only really hurts them for a week or two. It doesn't have any lasting effect. Like, you know, it's like, Um, you know unless they're like you know doing something ridiculous or racist or whatever but like you know like a perfect example today Gucci the the fashion brand they um they got in a lot of trouble because they released a sweater it's a black sweater that kind of had a ski mask attached to it and it was like a blackface like sweater so like thing so it's like you know I saw a couple posts on it today that people were like wow these guys are so out of touch I'm never gonna buy Gucci again well one I bet you they never bought anything Gucci to begin with because it's like a fifteen hundred dollar sweater and who pays fifteen hundred dollars for sweaters? And two, I guarantee you, two weeks from now, no one will be talking about it. Like H and M, you know, had that crazy screw up with the the they called the a little black kid a monkey and like nobody talked about it a week later. People, you know, they're still doing fine. There's still lineups uh, to buy stuff. Like like we live in such a a time. It's like such a weird opportunity because everyone is going to jump on your back and talk about you, but it's also so noisy that, like, 24 hours later, they're just going to go to the next thing. So why aren't yeah. we manipulating people for those 24 hours to to get, like, you know, own the Internet? As long as you're not, you know, killing people or kidnapping kids or whatever, like, you can actually use this to your advantage, and I don't see anybody using it to their advantage.
3: It reminds me of... Um the Truman show, the movie with uh, Jim Carrey Carrey. yeah, and um, all like the hilarious little ad placements they have of like, you know, he's having like a really conversation, but his friend is like drinking a beer and he's like, like zooms in. It's like, I feel like that's all the influencer stuff going on right now. And like, there's all these like tiny bets that brands place on like, even being like involved or recognized with someone else they're kind of just like hopping on and like being like a leech to all these people with more influence I think a
0: lot of people are blocking off like influencers and internet personalities have more of a personality than brands do right now so i think that might be part of it i don't know so i i don't really have a strong opinion on this matter but i just feel like there's there's also that dynamic of people are like younger people are turning off brands and they're more like more following people and influencers so then that might be part of it
1: well, I just I think I think a lot of it has to do with brands are lazy. You know, it's like they could pay Kim Kardashian twenty five thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars, whatever whatever the ridiculous number is for her to you know do a, a tweet and hit you know two, three, four, five million people, whatever those numbers are. But guess what? Like, you lose all credibility because two hours later she's going to do another um, yeah. tweet ad. So there, it's like I as a fan of the brand. I'm going to look at it and say, okay, well, they rented her for like a minute or two. It's not, hey, she really believes in what they're doing. She's she's all in. She loves this product. And even if she was all in and loved a product, you don't believe that they're doing it out of goodwill anymore anyways. You just assume everyone's getting paid for everything. So yeah. it's like, it's it's just kind of weird that, brands still put so much stock like i think there's value in influencers i think there's value in in you know all that stuff but you know the the brands that aren't lazy um and there's not that many of them um you know anymore but the brands that aren't lazy make their own influencers they actually find the people that really dig their company and they and, and they elevate them through their own you know channels as opposed to just writing checks and and saying you know hey whenever my stomach is upset i drink you know this (laughs) tea or whatever like it's like it's it's kind of silly
3: yeah i agree i wonder um like i love that you bring this up because it makes me think about uh like all the creativity that went into like commercials and billboards and sort of like the the old school you know marketing channels and stuff and how today maybe we're a little more spoiled in like the way that we can get the same results. Like no offense to demand gen, but like you can put up an advertisement and it just has to be like a stock photo with some text on it possibly. And it works, yeah. Yeah, or a screenshot of the product and it works. Like you don't, the bar is is sort of low. Really low, yeah. I wonder since like the channels maybe are a lot different that people don't have to be as creative as they used to. But maybe they should be more creative now and use that as like a huge advantage for them.
0: Yeah, and I think part of that is because you can go so hyper-targeted based on intent or, you know, whatever, all these data points. So you don't need to be creative because you already sort of infer that they're in that place where they're likely to buy or sign up for a demo or sign up for a trial or whatever that metric is. Then even if you put on a stock photo and you just say, hey, sign up for a free trial for this tool, and they're like, yes, this is exactly what I need. Maybe that's what it is, yeah. Could
2: be. Yeah, I mean, it's expensive to be creative, right? Um, because That's, it could not, it may fail. It may completely fail. I and mean, you put all this hour and, you know, coming up with the idea and like stage the event or stage the campaign, whereas it's like you just put up the screenshot with the free trial and that works just as well. Um, I mean, I you know, I think it obviously does depend on the brand and, and what they're going after because after a certain time period, the screenshot with the free trial isn't isn't gonna work anymore. I mean in my space, and not my space, but the space I work in <laughs> mm-hmm. with, with project management software, you guys probably know this Monday.com, have you guys Yeah,
0: yeah. Heard I've seen it? a lot of their ads, yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're doing like tons of ads and, and like to at a certain point the the I mean and they're they're creative for sure, but the normal type stuff wasn't moving the needle for them anymore, you know, compared to their funding expectations or their revenue expectations so they had to like up the ante a little bit with like subway ads and, and different things and so it also depends on like the returns that you're looking for to to move the needle too.
1: when you when you talk about um um you know people being afraid to fail i thought that was the first rule of startup land fail fail harder, fail faster fail 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 but, not uh,
0: if you have a ton of VC money then mm, then yeah. they want a return yeah. But also, I think because marketing is becoming, I feel like there's over, an overall trend where marketing is becoming less creative or more like, you know, you're trying to tie every touch point to revenue at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in B2B or SaaS, like, you, there's no room, like, creativity is in a bad way. I feel bad. Like, I don't agree with this, but creativity is being squeezed out when, why spend 20K on a video when a screenshot with an ad on Facebook can get you the same results? Again, two different purposes, but like I just feel like that that might be part of it. Not for a big brand like an HM perspective, but like in the space we're in where it's B2B SAS, like a lot of people just don't even get creative.
2: VC money should be a topic for sure. Speaking of medium, there
0: was
2: like a gumroad article being like passed around. Did you guys see that?
0: I did not read it, but I saw that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, we should talk
0: about that. If, if I'm gonna put it for episode two. Whenever that happens. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell someone about it and uh, see you next time.